I'm Shannon. And I'm Alex. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Shannon, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Sure, I'm Shannon, and I'm going to plug vaccines. They are safe and effective, and everyone should get them, if you can. Uh, I would like to point out to the listeners that about 30 seconds ago, Shannon said she wasn't going to plug anything, so good improv. I'm really quick thinker like that. Uh, and Alex, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? My name is Alex and I would like to plug fresh spring rolls that you can get at the Vietnamese restaurant. They're like little burritos, but they have like this translucent wrapper and they're full of vegetables and stuff. And they're really good. Is it like a, is it like a rice noodle wrapper? Yeah, they're real good. So Alex, I notice, has a pattern of plugging things that he's eaten recently. <laughs> That's because I eat what I like. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that spring rolls are more important than vaccines. <laughs> you know what's also good is the ones that when they fry the spring rolls. Mm. I, think it's, I think it's the same thing, but fried. Is that an egg roll at that point? I think they still call them spring rolls. Interesting. I think the egg roll is a different... I don't know. I don't know these things. You know, they have some different variations on vaccines, too, but um, they're all effective and safe, and you should get them. Are any of them wrapped in rice noodles? Uh, I heard the I heard the rice noodles cause autism. Oh, man. That explains a lot. I don't know if that part of that joke is going to go in the show. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Uh, would you like to start on some topics? Let's do it. Alex, your topic is human-led gaming over the, over the internet, like escape rooms. How the DM is walking a line of controlling everything versus being completely controlled by the players. And how to design games to be played like this over the internet. Oh man, so it's a good thing we squoze this one in um, before you know too much time went by and it wasn't topical anymore. We did, a, we did an escape room here in, this, in these quarantine times. An internet ex escape room? Well, that was what was weird about it. It's because it was not, it was just kind of early in the pandemic and... It was really just a regular escape room set up to have people in it, but we were all sitting on Zoom or something, and there was one guy walking around, the the employee was walking around the actual escape room, and kind of just like eight of us on the call yelling at him to be like, go over there, pick up the thing, shine the flashlight on the thing, and like, oh man, <laughs> it was... I don't envy having to be that guy with eight people trying to tell him, you know, look under the rug and open the light switch, <laughs> whatever. That's really funny. And so I was just like, well, this is kind of cool. And it did, it worked. Like it was still a fun escape room. It would have been better if we had 16 hands instead of two. But then I was just thinking like, you know, this is like a medium. Like how could we build a game that is not harmed by being people in separate rooms, but instead like designed for it? I don't know. Yeah, something more closer to keep talking and nobody explodes. Right. I definitely, to be clear, got the impression that they had built this escape room with the intention of having people come and do it in person. But then when the pandemic hit, had revised it uh, to try to be in this remote format. And they had done some things to try to make it a little bit more accessible. For example, they had taken individual photos of all of the objects, including uh, the bottoms of them, the sides of them. So at a certain point, they would say, here's this area, here's all of the items that came out of this drawer. 
and there would be these series of photos. So you wouldn't have to have the person pull out every single individual item and flip them over and turn them around and everything. But it was still clearly an accommodation made after the fact to deal with that problem of the person not being there. And I would not be at all surprised if they hadn't run a few games without that accommodation and realized this is not a good system and uh, revised it accordingly. Yeah, I feel like understanding that the game of this game is going to be played remotely in mind, you could lean into that and do off the top of my head, I can't think of a good theme for it, but something along the lines of like a like found footage or like like how um, Kanan Lynch 2, it, it uses like everything about the presentation, like gives the impression that this is like a, a video that someone like filmed off of their phone and uploaded to YouTube. Huh. That's almost like a second person shooter. <laughs> yeah. So I actually early in the pandemic had an idea for a game that would take advantage of remote players. I just didn't have the... Uh, it turned into a much bigger project uh, that I wanted it to be than I could feasibly do by myself. Um, right. And so I kind of ended up abandoning it. But uh, the mechanic that involved players being in separate spaces essentially was that I, I wanted them to essentially be operating on a map that was the same map and they would be moving in turns that were, you know, approximately... They would have different movement speeds and certain things like that, but if they actually encountered another one of the ships, they could only speak to them uh, if they were proximate enough to them or if they had the appropriate technologies to be able to speak to them. So, for example, early on, if you were within a certain amount of spaces from one of the other ships, the players would be able to text, uh, send back and forth semaphore flags as images. And that was the only way in which they could communicate. And then once you managed to unlock uh, having uh, a Morse code system, you could do that. If you wanted to board the other ship, then the players could do a Zoom call. So there were certain sorts of like limitations to how the players could communicate with each other based on proximity on this on this map that they were playing on at the same time. I was just trying to come up with something that would make it interesting, the fact that the people were not in the same location. But I think it's very different than sort of the setup that we were initially talking about, where it's more of a players and person who is controlling the game distinction, as opposed to a player-to-player distinction. Hmm. Yeah, I think the player-to-player is more a more unique kind of a mechanic. That like you can play, you know, D and D led games or, or sorry, DM led games like D and D or whatever. And those you know scale okay with Zoom, but having the ability to break it into as many breakout rooms or have these you know dynamic interactions is kind of a cool thing. I did actually. I played a um, in a LARP during the pandemic too that was done over Zoom, and uh, I, I think in the original LARP you would just go into literally go into different rooms but we used breakout rooms to simulate that and it worked uh, very well i thought i guess i just really like the idea of unequal information channels that can be created and destroyed between different players based on game i don't know situations i don't know that's just a fun mechanic i don't have a game it just sounds cool yeah if there is a if there is a dm involved in that i think it makes it challenging for the dm to keep track of it but it is it is pretty cool. 
Yeah, you might need more than one. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the limitations of this thing I was trying to build, too, is I realized there kind of needs to be somebody who knows what's actually going on in both locations to guide them or who can easily communicate with both teams. Um, and that wasn't really feasible to do for sure. You need like a mil- middle manager DM. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, I actually tried to automate a large portion of it. I was making it into a choose your own adventure style movement system and uh, whatever. I got pretty far with it, but at a certain point I realized it kind of needed to be built out on a website and I don't know how to build websites. And I got a little bit of help from some folks, but uh, interest sort of petered out. So some other time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. If you ever start that project up again, let me know. Yeah, I will. But yeah, going back to kind of just thinking about the the initial discussion of the escape room, hmm. I just I feel like there you that you know a commercial escape room could definitely build a game that was intended to be played remote and still had that sort of pseudo FMV quality to it as far <laughs> as like it was right because it was like this first person viewpoint and it felt like you were controlling them as a little video game character <laughs> but yep. like certain scripted things would happen sort you know like i don't know there would be like a I, I think like an alien corpse showed up at some point and the guy wanted to you know act it out as his character and was like doing this whole like oh my god there's an alien corpse what do i do and we were immediately like look at the corpse inspect the corpse flip it over what's in its hand <laughs> you know we didn't care at all about what he was trying to do acting wise and plot wise, uh, we were being extremely annoying. So I just, I think that like, if there had been some clear stop go element of like, nope, now is the part where you sit and watch the little FMV movie. And Mm. now you have control of the character again. But Mm. since there was no delineation, we were just like, I don't care moving on. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Anyway, I, th- I do think that it's it's uh, been somewhat interesting to, to see uh, how games like this have adapted given the pandemic and the limitations that people had. I think a lot of people have thought of ideas like I had um, and ways to sort of make things that uh, not only work over remote distances, but that take advantage of the remoteness to make a cool new thing which I'm excited to see stuff that comes out of that. Yeah, and actually I played that game was now, I don't know, 9 months or so ago that we played it and yeah, I feel like that the turnaround has to be short enough that like there's probably games out there that are already doing this. Yeah, I was just thinking, I know some of my favorite like escape game companies have released new games in the I don't know, since then, and I haven't checked them out yet, so maybe I need to get on that and see what they've done. Maybe that's what we'll do as our as a anniversary to that is check out some <laughs> of, some of those games that have that have come out by the same companies that are having this uh, setup in mind. Well, damn! Now I wish we'd recorded like a month from now. <laughs> we can have a. We'll follow-up. come back. Oh yeah, there you go. Uh, are, we, are we ready for another topic? Sure. I think so. Shannon, your topic is the best and worst parts of camping. Yeah. We were lucky enough to be able to go camping, I think, twice during this pandemic, Hmm. which was just nice to get away from things. But I don't know. I was just thinking about the second time we went camping. It was very cold and windy and we were sort of sitting there freezing, but sitting in front of a fire and just sort of enjoying ourselves. And 
uh, our dog Renly was miserable and cold. (laughs) And we kept jokingly, you know, speaking in his voice and being like, why are we in the woods? Why are we out here? Why are we not in our warm house? Are we homeless now? What is happening? And I hadn't really thought about it, but it occurred to me that like, why is camping even fun? Like it is to me, but why? (laughs) What is enjoyable about this experience of leaving your cozy warm home where all your stuff is and having, you know, less access to food you want and entertainment and, you know, I have a fire pit at my house, like, so it's not just that, but yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, but presumably it's the, the novelty of not having your luxuries. Yeah. You said something the other day in another context, we were talking about, <laughs> this is Joko Cruise, and this year they're not doing it, of course. They would normally be doing it, I don't know, right about now, but instead they're doing a virtual version, and there's like, most of the same kind of acts are there, and they're, it's free to attend. And like, we weren't even going to go and we're like, ah, you know, we're not, why would we go to this thing unless we are imprisoned on a sea vessel? Then suddenly our perspective changes and we're stuck here in the middle of the ocean. And suddenly it seems like a very good idea. And when we're sitting at home, it's just the same kind of activities don't have the same appeal. Yeah, no, if you're at home, you're, you're tempted by all your at home distractions. The, the, the comforts that you default to. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in moving yourself away from your comforts so that you don't just fall back on them without thinking. I think to some extent it's a, it's a I could be doing something better aspect to like for example with the with the Joko example, I was looking at the list of things and you know, there were some interesting looking things on there, but nothing that was interesting enough to make me want to watch it instead of getting something done around my house that was more useful or watching something more interesting. Whereas if I was on the boat in the middle of the ocean, I would be like, well, I have literally nothing else to do. So I guess I'll go listen to this interesting. You you can't clean your room, you know? And I wonder if camping has some of the same (laughs) elements of like, well, I am in the middle of the woods. So I guess I just have to sit here and enjoy this fire because it's the only thing to do out here. Whereas at home, I'd be like, I could make a fire pit whenever I want, but I usually don't. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the same thing. Like I've, I, you know, packed up all of my camping stuff, which took all day. And I went to the store and bought all these sausages. And now I'm going to drive for a couple hours into the forest and do a bunch of labor setting up camp so that I can avoid doing nice things at home. I don't know. It, it's when you put it that way, it sounds weird, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a strange thing. And obviously there's the, the scenery element, the quiet element. Like there are certain things that uh, I think you cannot get at home that are worth going there for, but by and large, it is a lot of effort to do what is objectively a less enjoyable experience probably than being in your home (laughs) anyway so so i I was just trying to figure out like i guess what is it that makes me want to do it sometimes you got to go look at trees in the dark we still haven't discussed at all the best and worst parts of camping oh yeah yeah well i guess speaking to what alex just said nighttime nighttime is pretty good well we can get nighttime at home (laughs) <laughs> we but, have nighttime at home. <laughs> but you you know what I mean as far as uh 
being outside in the dark is not an experience that most humans frequently have a lot anymore. If you are outside in the dark, it's usually because you're on your way to somewhere inside. So deliberately going outside in a place that is not well lit uh, is, is sort of a very unique behavior, I think, for a lot of people now. Because even if you're going to go on a walk at night in your neighborhood, there's probably some street lights, you know, or if you're going out to a concert, it's probably got floodlights. There's just very few opportunities to walk in a actually pretty dark place. Yes, this one aspect that I, I think I really enjoy about camping is being in the dark outside and having that sort of feeling of, to some extent, unease of, you know, here's you've got your little fire or your little, you know, light here and uh, around you is uh, darkness and the unknown. It's sort of a, it feels very connected to how humans must have been before lights were just always available. Right. Yeah. But it's uh, like a, it's like going to a museum of what it was like to be an, uh, an ancient human. Yes, exactly. I'm constantly thinking about pre-industrial humanity when I'm camping. Because it's like, ah, this is what it must have been like when it got dark. It just got dark and you had your fire and that was it. Like, <laughs> your day is over. It doesn't continue as long as you feel like it, you want it to continue, you know? Yeah. And same thing with the weather aspect too. You know, if it is cold, you better have figured out a way to deal with that cold or raining and vice versa. You know, it's sort of a reminder that I guess that's kind of what it is, is a reminder of your comforts. It's making yourself uncomfortable. I don't know. I wonder if it just makes you more appreciative of the comforts that you do have. Yep, there's probably some value there. Yeah, I mean, I certainly feel better after I come back from a camping trip. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it, it doesn't seem like it would just be like, you know, the stripper comes out wearing clothes because then it gets better when she takes them off. I don't think that's all it is. I think, like, I think there's something to this that people really enjoy of itself. Like, part of it for me is going out to here, like, to be in trees where it's really quiet. Well, that alone is, like, pretty cool because I live in the suburbs where there's freaking noise all the time and the freeway is right over there and you can always hear it. And so, being away from that is nice. And then hearing just, like, the sound of wind rustling, like, leaves and branches and nothing else is, like, really nice for me. And I can, like, it sounds better in person. I feel the same way about, like going to the symphony or whatever like i have nice headphones and i can listen to music and i do that and it's pretty good but it just sounds better in person and i think it goes really doubly strong for things like rustling branches sounds well the symphony is another great example of uh something that is benefited greatly by something by being forced to focus on it yeah i guess you're you're kind of captured for a few hours in your seat there in the same way that you're captured overnight in your tent. Yeah. And, and a symphony like the, you know, you try to listen to a symphony at home or God forbid in a car and it's just, <laughs> it's impossible because the quiet parts are too quiet. And if you turn it up so you can hear the quiet parts, the loud parts are too loud. Like the, the dynamics are built for 
for a captive audience in a otherwise silent room. Yeah. I think that kind of happens with a lot of uh, live performances of, of any type, though, too, like um, musicals or plays and stuff like that. There's uh, now this is making me think of the Joko thing again. There's a vibe that goes with it that's different than, oh, I could do this same behavior at home. But it's not the same. Even if you're doing the exact same activities in a different location, it's not the same because it doesn't have the same vibe. Uh, at the very least, even if you successfully, yes, I will. I will pointedly ignore all the other things I could be doing. You part of your mind is occupied doing the ignoring. Yes, I feel like a, a quintessential example of this is uh, watching a movie at home versus going to the movies because that's one where it's like literally the same basically <laughs> like there's there's very little difference between what you're actually doing and yet there is a, a very experiential difference mm -hmm. you know i feel like if you're going to see a movie you just have a lot more attention for it and i feel after going out to see a movie like more inclined to want to discuss it or engage with it, I think, than I do, than I tend to at home. Yeah, it's something about just sort of shaking up that environment, I think. Well, and this is something also that I feel like phones have kind of eaten into this phenomenon where no matter, well, and except in movie theaters where you're very strongly discouraged from using your phone, but like uh, in many situations that you would, you know, 20 years ago would have had your complete attention because you had nothing else to do. There is that temptation of taking your phone out of your pocket and, and pulling to refresh. Mm. Yeah, that's true. At least on one of our trips, we we did deliberately turn off of our phones for the for the duration of the camping trip or, or the majority of it in any case, which I think would just had to be done in order to actually get the experience that we wanted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've heard stories about Joko Cruise and I don't know, I have feelings about it. But one thing that always seemed interesting to me was there's no internet because there's no way to get internet on the boat. But what they apparently, at least on one cruise that I heard about, do have is like a Twitter server set up just for, not, not Twitter, but like a Twitter alike. Yeah. Yes. Set up you. just for the people on the boat. And by the end of the week, there were the flame wars were just as bad as on the regular Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, I think it depends. Like on the last one we went on, I think it was quite bad. But I think part of that was due to the fact that we were trying to figure out whether or not we were going to be allowed back in the country because it was <laughs> around March 14th or 15th. Uh, I Yikes. think we were, the, we were the first ship back after the international uh, travel ban and they were supposed to be barring ships. Fortunately, they let us in and it was no problem. But there was, there. I feel like the ship sort of broke into two factions. One group that didn't want to hear anything about the outside world. They were like, this is our last vacation. We want to not know what's going on. And one group that very, very much wanted to know what was up with this whole pandemic thing. It got pretty darn contentious. In the previous year we went, uh, there was certainly some some element of flame wars but I felt like it was much more of a, you knew that, that everyone who was speaking there was proximate to you. 
So it was very micro-focused information. Um, For example, one night I remember there was a dessert on the menu and it had a typo in it that made it unclear what type of like flavor the dessert was because it said one thing, one place, one thing, another place. And I wanted it if it was flavor A, but I didn't want it if it was flavor B. Rather than asking a waiter, I quickly went on onto uh, their version of Twitter and said, hey, did anybody order this dessert? What is the actual flavor? And I immediately got a response. <laughs> and it was just like, well, that was very, very convenient. Uh, you know, or there were people who were just like, oh, we brought too much wine. Does anybody want a bottle of wine? We're in room this. And you would just go. Yeah, that's almost like if, if your dorm had a Twitter yeah. yeah. So it didn't really feel like the internet as much as like, you know what it felt more like is like uh, the ch- the chat we have for us and our neighbors because yeah. we live next door to people who are friends with us because it, it was much more just a way to facilitate in-person interactions. That's interesting. Yeah. One of my favorite things about it is that because it's like the internet in that you can communicate with anybody in the group, but it's unlike the internet because you can't access any new information. (laughs) So there'll be somebody like who gets in an argument with somebody over dinner or whatever. And they'll be like, how many Pokemon are there? And they'll be like, I have no idea, but somebody on this boat does. And it's a good thing because if they didn't, we would have no way to know. Somebody brought their Encyclopedia Britannica for just this purpose. (laughs) Honestly, people probably did. But yeah, it's just like I felt really useful because I could get on their thread and be like, oh, I think there's like 800 and something Pokemon. They're like, all right, I I downloaded Wikipedia to my laptop before we left. So we're we're good. I mean, I used it almost primarily to facilitate. Yeah, in-person interactions with people, meetups, or encourage people, you know, try to find people who had similar things. Or one thing I used it for a lot was uh, seasickness. I was extremely seasick the first time, and so were other people. So all the people who couldn't go out and do fun things because they were seasick were had a seasickness chat where we were all hanging out together. <laughs> did that make it better? It did make it better. I had no good. other people and uh, and it also was great because some people had brought seasickness medicine and they offered it to people who worked in the seasickness chat. So some of us ended up getting uh, help. So anyway, that's a big, big old tangent, but I think it, it does sort of tie into the sort of sense of, well, you're not connected to the outside world, but you are connected to this like subset of the outside world and like i don't know it almost makes me think of like a post-apocalyptic scenario where you like you don't have access to all the information anymore only the people in your group is what access you have so you get things like on the last trip uh tim the virologist there was a virologist on the ship and a bunch of people had questions about this whole pandemic thing so he became sort of a pseudo celebrity in the space yeah Tim the virologist. Yeah, so is this like a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas thing or like can I find an archive of that uh the the Twitter log somewhere like can I bit torrent it I think the idea is that it is it is ephemeral on purpose I yeah, think that, this, that makes this sense discussion comes up from time to time but a lot of the time they're just like no this is a this is a thing that has happened and now we will let go I bet somebody logged it it's possible. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. 
But kind of, kind of going back to your point about like the flame wars or whatever, the thing I noticed is that the only time I noticed a big conflict with the group was when the conflict was about whether or not to bring in more information from the outside, i.e. the COVID situation. Um, And I just think that's interesting in light of our much broader conversation here that the conflict arose out of the debate over whether or not to include more uh, outside information as opposed to relying what you had with what you had in the circumstance. Um, So what do you like about camping? (laughs) What do I like? (laughs) I like my likes are mostly theoretical in, in practice. I don't like camping, but in theory, I do like being surrounded by nature. I've never seen the Milky way. I still oh, want to. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Well, that would be fun to go see. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of um, Yuru Camp. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it is, an, it is an anime about high school girls. Middle school girls? I don't know. Girls going camping in Japan. I believe that the first season, at least, was in fact funded by a specific region of Japan that was trying to encourage uh, camping tourism. Uh-huh. But it is so relaxing. It's a very chill show, and it extremely makes me want to go camping in Japan. Yeah. I want to go to, what was it, Nintendo World? Yeah, me too. (laughs) Although, like, I'm pretty sure it's like, it's like a hundred square feet or something like that. Like, (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's a really, really, really small subsection of some other park. Aw, that's lame. It has a lot of interactive features, though, crammed into that space, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm very curious about that stuff, but also, like, I'm scared of going there and being like, I came to Japan for this, <laughs> so I need to go for some other reason, too. Because, like, Watch my... my camping yeah, I could go camping. For, yeah, we could go camping together. I know of a really good hole-in-the-wall socket bar. I could take you there. Maybe I could learn to, like any kind of booze while I'm there. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm just afraid that like the interactive stuff is going to be ruined by, you know, just long lines. It's going to be like when you try to go to like an interactive science museum on a day that kids are allowed and you're just like, Oh, I can't actually do it because it's for the kids. (laughs) So you have to go on one of those like adult nights where they serve booze and no kids are allowed. And then you can actually play around with all the stuff. Right. Yep. And then maybe I can learn to like booze. Yeah, well, you can like the fact that it's illegal to have kids around with booze around. Is that true in Japan as well? Doubtful. I have no idea, actually. Uh, In Japan, you're allowed to open carry alcohol on the street, so... That's a fair point. I don't think... Throw it in a kid's face if they give you sass. That's right. Yeah, Japan, they're they're cool with you drinking on the street and all that, um, but they're not cool with you dancing on the street. And I think that <laughs> like the reason loose. for this is probably just because they've decided you are too drunk if you have started dancing on the street, and that is their calibration to determine when to arrest you. What if I just have a really eccentric walk? <laughs> oh, tr- like every time, I don't know, I learned this fact one time while I was in Japan, and one of the other travelers I was with was like legitimately nervous about it. So anytime I did see cops, I would start like, just adding a little bit of 
jazz <laughs> to my walk, like start kind of like bobbing my head or like walking a little bit more funky and just like making eye contact with her and yeah. like making it clear that the cops were watching. I was just trying to make her uncomfortable. But I bet they have different standards for whether white people are dancing. Yes, I, I was pretty sure that I was not going to get arrested for dancing because I was clearly a white foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> You can get away with a lot as a white foreigner in Japan. We we had an experience where our guide was oh. trying to get us into a temple on New Year's Eve. And there was like this super long line. I mean, just ridiculously long. Thousands of people. And we were very confused about like where exactly we were supposed to go and what the deal was. And our guide... I don't know how he got over there, but there was a line of police that were making it pretty clear that we were not supposed to go this way. And he somehow disappeared and reappeared on the other line of the other side of the police line and just started like waving us in and was like, just come in. And I don't know if he like went through the bushes or what, but we're a bunch of white people for the most part standing there. And we just walked past the police and they were like, excuse me, sorry, this is the wrong way, you know, in Japanese. And I was just like, oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't, our, our friend, I, I, you know, and you just kind of like bumble your way past and they didn't stop us or do anything. <laughs> and we ended up like at the other side of the line and like merged in with it early. And I felt kind of bad, but I was also just like very confused about what was going on. But yeah, I did. I, I hear did. you. This is how you get away with sexual harassment as well. Oh no, I don't like that. But yeah, though, the cops were very much just like, Oh, we're not actually going to do anything to stop you. Like if you, if you're gonna, if you're going to walk past us, we're just going to allow that to happen. Yeah, this might be one of those things where the police, their job is just to know what the rules are and they have no way to enforce them. Yeah, it sort of felt that way. Yeah, that was that was sort of interesting, though. Or it might be that, like, you know how Japan has, like, a 99% conviction rate? Oh. Mm. Uh, it may be that, like, they only arrest you if they're like, okay, this is a super egregious crime. Yeah. Or they have irrefutable proof. Right. Well, also, I can see where they're coming from, too, because, like, I don't know, if a bunch of foreigners are coming at you and it's unclear whether or not they can actually understand your instructions, even if you feel like you're being pretty physically obvious, like, right. what are you going to do? Physically restrain them? Get out the truncheon. And well, if you're in the United States. <laughs> do, they, do they not have truncheons? No, he just had, like, those yeah. airplane, like... Sticks. Light sticks, <laughs> right. you know, like flashlights with the traffic cones on them. And he was just oh, like yeah. waving them, like crossing them and being like, no. He could hit somebody with that. We just kind of walked through. Yeah. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yeah. So my topic is shutting off the PC speaker as a service. So I was just thinking about uh, my first real job was early 2000s. I was working for a web design company, and while I was trying to figure out how to be useful to this company, the first thing I did that was useful was there was this uh, timesheet program that you use to keep track of your hours, and like every, I don't know, 40 or 50 clicks you made in the program, there, there would be this beep that it would 
make to acknowledge that you had changed the state of your timesheet. And like every 40 or 50 times you did that, uh, the program would crash in the middle of the beep. So the beep kept happening. This is back when, and I think this is probably still, I think, I think PC hardware still has these speakers in them because the BIOS uses it to convey error messages. Mm. Uh, but this is the one bit PC speaker that all, all it can produce is a square wave. Yeah, I remember those. And you, if you get in there and like toggle a bit manually, you can do more interesting stuff. But the way it was almost always used was there's a timer chip where you say you set the timer, like how fast the timer to run and the timer automatically toggles the speaker and that's the beep. And then you have to tell it, okay, now you stop playing a beep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if your program crashes before you tell it to stop playing the beep, it just goes forever. And so I got in there and I used debug.com because this was still when people had DOS on their you could run DOS programs under Windows. And I wrote a little assembly language program to toggle the speaker off. Oh, man. And this was like, it was like a six-byte program. And it was my the first useful thing I did at this company. Nice. Um, <laughs> later on, we lost track of that program. And I replaced it with a six-byte batch file, which was echo space control G. Nice. Which just plays the beep character, prints the beep character, which makes the speaker beep and then stop beeping. So, and obviously nowadays, if you did the same thing, that'd be a microtransaction. So, you'd be paying like, you'd buy a, you'd buy a package of like 50 beep shutoffs for a dollar. Oh man. And then when you ran out, you have to buy more. Oh, for a second there, I forgot what microtransactions were. And I was thinking like you'd get on Fiverr and you'd hire somebody to log into your computer and shut off the for $5. That's a good idea too. It's the gig economy. I was just trying to figure out how old I was when DOS stopped being run on Windows. Yeah, it was... um... It was Windows 2000 the, when they started, then they brought the NT code base over to the consumer. Uh, so it was, I think it was literally the turn, turn of the millennium. Like Windows ME was still based on the Windows 95 uh, branch. So you could still run DOS programs under Windows ME, but not under Windows 2000. Okay. So I was like 13. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't writing a lot of DOS programs, to be fair, but I remember it and I had like a freaking old crappy computer that my parents had that they would let me use to use my fucking whatever kids games that i don't remember the name of but i loved yeah scunny the squirrel save our pizzas what was the one uh the guy i don't know there was a mirage involved prince of persia i'm almost certain that like i could hum some of the music from it even (laughs) today uh, I don't know. It was, there was a kid, and you jumped around. You swung over pits. You swung. Yeah, you swung over pits. It was two dimensional platformer. And and you were a kid, and it was DOS. Uh, I don't remember exactly if it was DOS. I don't. What I did didn't. It, I didn't make these sorts of distinctions. Are we talking about like a five pixel high art, or like a thing that you can recognizably tell what it is? Art. No, you could recognizably tell, and it, it had like a. Oh, it had a fake uh, Star Wars crawl at the <laughs> beginning, I think. Nice. And there was a word like invader in it. Oh, was this invasion of the Vortigaunts? No. Was this Commander Keen? Commander Keen, yes. Thank you. That's what it was. 
Yeah, Commander Keen is a, a fun series. That's by the same people who made Doom. Really? Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Yes, it was Commander Keen. Yeah, that was a that was that was a pretty good, pretty solid like back when it was a big deal for the PC to make it to play a game like the NES. Mm. That was a pretty solid platformer. And there was uh, we had Doom Two. So when I say I play these games let me be clear i was a girl and the games had been purchased for my brother <laughs> so yeah yeah you weren't allowed to actually did, touch I wasn't the keyboard allowed to actually touch them in any way shape or form i was only allowed to uh stand by and annoyingly watch over his shoulder until he yelled that i was being too annoying and i got kicked out of the room or whatever uh you're girling up this video game you're hysterical <laughs> is, is causing it to fritz out come on to be fair, you were pretty annoying, but I don't no. think it was because you were a girl. Wow. <laughs> no, I didn't Rude. even have, like, I didn't have that kind of, like, I don't know what to call it. Real video game is the words that are coming to my brain, but it's not really true. Hey, you had burger time for the NES. I had the NES when I was too young to play it, and I was, like, literally sitting in my dad's lap, and he would use half the controller, and I would use the other half. So... Very young. That sounds like real video games. That was a real video game. But sometime between then and when I had my SNES that I purchased for myself with my own money, and that's like what I would consider, I guess, my first game system. Hmm? Question mark? Anyway, I had a bunch of edutainment oh, DOS yeah. games that were like probably not very good, but man, I enjoyed them. I had maybe yeah. bacon teaches typing. Oof, that was not a good one. I did not enjoy that one. <laughs> oh, another one involved having a little mouse that would run around the screen and like a cat would chase it. But then I realized eventually it was a screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the skiing one with the Yeti. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ski free. It's a classic. I didn't have that one myself, but my dad's friend had it. So whenever we went to his house, I would be like, let me play the skiing game. <laughs> Man, good times. Yeah, you know, you got uh you were easily entertained as children in the in the nineties. Well there weren't that many games, so Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll play Pipe Dream since since uh Super Mario sixty four wait wait, Super Mario sixty four did exist then, but not on your PC and Windows. Mm. Unless you had Ultra HLE. I couldn't even convince my dad to get a freaking CD-ROM drive for so many years after. Well, luckily, the Nintendo 64 is cartridge-based. Well, I also couldn't convince him to buy me a Super an N64, so... Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. By the way, when I said I bought my own SNES... This was after my friends had an N64. Oh. <laughs> so, like, I How was, was this? But, like, I got a lot of use out of my, S my NES and my SNES. There's, I mean, I'm looking at them right now. They're still on my shelf. You although were playing I don't use them the anymore. SNES while your friends were playing Mario Kart 64? Yeah, I would I'm go over so there. sorry. And we would play Smash Brothers and Goldeneye, and then I would go home. And I, but I had and, good and games, you'd be like, this is, the, this is the real shit. Here's Pac-Man 2, motherfuckers. <laughs> I also had bad games. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Are we ready for another topic? Ooh. Let's do it. So, we are going to be watching 
Call Me By Your Name by Lil Nas X. Am I reading that right? That's correct. Sounds right to me. That's how it's pronounced? Well, I never asked. All right. I've never seen this before, so uh, I, I, I'm told I'm in for a treat. Uh, Alex and I have seen it, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. And slower. I can appreciate all the details. Oh, maybe we should try one of these days watching it at 2x playback speed. That might be good, too. Mm. Ooh, yeah, then you could do, like, the, the whole dark side of the moon or something. I'm going to count down to three, and uh, we hit play on zero. Three, two, one, zero. And we're off. This is... Uh, a uh, very unrealistic set of clouds here. They they seem to be hugging the sun. Giving <laughs> it a big hug. Aww. We we start off with a with the order of call me opening titles. I've never okay. I was gonna say I've never seen music video with opening titles in it, but usually they just appear in the bottom left corner. Mm. Oh, it has the director and everything. The directors, I should say. Well, yeah. X was involved uh, heavily in in making this music video. I understand that he used uh, still frames from SpongeBob to help illustrate what he wanted. Really? <laughs> That's very good. Yes, I could see that in the color palette, maybe. <laughs> Man, now I want to have the director's commentary. This sounds really interesting. Right? I'm curious <laughs> to know, honestly. So, where do you think we are, Jim? Uh, this is clearly uh, ancient Greece covered in pink flowers. All right. Yes, could be. Could be. And here's uh, here's the snake that represents Satan tempting Eve from the Garden of Eden. Oh my God! There's a tree. <laughs> That's a cool tree. Yeah. It is a tree. It's like made of seashells. And here is this our is this our protagonist, this is our Lil Nas protagonist X? Here, protagonist, Lil Nas X, singing a song. Got a pink guitar. This is exciting. I've only seen this once, and I just watched it with like half my attention. And so now getting to like really drink it in, this is like pretty cool stuff. Yeah. So I, I remember the first time I watched it, thinking. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, yeah, for or for our listeners, the snake has just. Uh, yeah, he's got a cone head. <laughs> he's become a cone head. He's he's turned into a cone head. I remember trying to figure out what it is exactly that Little Nas X is wearing in this scene. Um, uh, mud, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's unclear whether it is clothes he, or... He smeared that. himself with mud so the predator couldn't find him. He, oh, wow. Well, it's not at, working. He was fake hogging. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> A tree has just given us a look. Uh-huh. Oh no! Flowers are giving us a look. The mountains giving us a look. Everyone's, everyone's got a look. Little Nas is still fake running. Yeah, that's a very very slow jog. Even in even in slow motion, you can tell it's a fake jog. Oh! Oh! Here comes Conehead Snake. Conehead found him. This is, does it say like Adidas on his chest? Is this is this promotion? So what is happening in the story here? Jim. Yeah, fill me in here. I mean, I don't recall that the the lyrics really explain it that much either, to be fair. No. Yeah, that's really nice under eye makeup. It really goes with the scales. Yeah, it, it appears. So this whole first scene, when I watched it at the beginning, really happened very quickly, and I, <laughs> I honestly didn't remember it. Wow, he's really fallen slowly. And here comes the the makeouts. Yeah, the snake's got like a corset with um, shoulder spikes. 
which I think is pretty cool, actually, as an alpha goat. And he's definitely wearing a thong underneath it. You can Mm -hmm. can tell this because it is a see-through corset. I was just thinking about the concept of corsets for snakes, and they would have to be so long. Mm, Yeah, to get that back support. And the world's (laughs) lowest lick of belly button. I didn't see the Aquaman movie, but I imagine that that's what the Aquaman movie armor looks like, right? Honestly, pretty much. We've got a very slow push in on... uh, Maybe that's Greek? It looks more or less like ancient Greek. Oh, Oh. we're we're on to our next scene. Marge is looking really... (laughs) (laughs) Marge Simpson here. Yeah, nice quaff. And there's our protagonist again. And then there's like mini Marge on the right. Yeah. With a smaller version of the same hairdo. Yeah. Hasn't grown out yet. Damn, that fan is made of jeans. That fan is made of jeans. <laughs> oh, shit. Outfits are made of jeans. That's amazing. I did not notice that. Oh. Okay, so the two with the blue Marge wigs, uh, their outfits are made of jeans. Also true. And our protagonist it has a pink wig and a pink fur, and he is not being treated well by the Marge Simpsons. This, this is the scene that he used a clip from SpongeBob to portray <laughs> i think it had patrick chained up in a coliseum type setting the staff is jeans the staff is jeans oh man everything is jeans i have to believe the hair since it's the same color as denim. denim so these are the denim police that have taken our hero little nas x to denim jail for his fashion crimes of, of not wearing denim all the time. I guess. Well, I'm not sure he was even wearing clothes in the previous scene. Are the nails also made of jeans? Uh, they have very long fingernails, the, the jeans people. We, we have yet to determine that. We're getting a zoom out of the stadium. It's all statues. I can remember. Yeah, are these like people, are these like golems or something? They're not wearing jeans. Well, man, he's, he's really looking, really at, looking at me. Very intense. Oh, oh my God. Hit Someone that. hit him with a miniature oh. wine glass. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was a butt plug, but... Uh, okay, all right. Maybe... You do you. Maybe I've been drinking wine out of the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember this either. Man, he's really shiny. He's been laminated. <laughs> it's the protector oh, from the flying Oh, he has LNX on his, uh, on his choker. Oh, nice. Little Nas X... There's an angel. He appears to be ascending into the heavens towards an angel, and he is, in fact, laminated. I will say that I rarely wear any item of clothing clothing that has my name on it. Oh, yes. Nice boots. This is the best part. I like those boots. I like that hair. Nice flying hair, yeah. Yeah, and the boots. So we are descending down... A never-ending stripper pole right now. Which is also a spear, I think. It was a spear. You could tell in the slow-mo when it came up past <laughs> Yeah, I definitely didn't see that last time. <laughs> so this is like the endless staircase in Mario 64. <laughs> the endless stripper pole. If you launch yourself Whee! at the stripper pole backwards, you can get... Right, you gotta... <laughs> You got to give the give the stairs a lap dance. That's right. <laughs> That's correct. I wonder if he, uh, to what extent he actually did the stripper pole stunts for this film. I mean, it looks like he's really doing them, but I don't know. If he had... It does. It does. Like it, it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this guy just has a stripper pole in his home. Yeah. yeah. 
No, no, that, me neither. All right, so we have nearly it. descended the stripper pole. It's getting there. Yep. Touchdown. Great form on that landing. Yeah, stuck the landing. That's really key. The judges are looking for that. In heels, too. Also mm-hmm. very. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a big deal. We got uh, a goatsy door. Yeah. <laughs> That hair is really nice on the the yeah, curls on the front. The little, I didn't notice like, those uh, curls. Polka dot boxers. Yeah, the boxers throw me off a bit. If I'm being honest, YouTube the boots probably. were necessary. And then we got some sort of cenobite here. I I believe that is Satan himself. Oh, okay, all right. I did notice just now that his horns are braids. Are they? <laughs> which is pretty great. In any other music video, I would say that was racist. No, they're they're made of braids. No, I mean that that the horn was made of braids, which is racist, is what I would would say. Ah, I see. But uh, in this one, I don't really think it's my place to say that. Oh, this mean, this scene got a lot longer. It would be. Uh, we are watching a very elongated uh, lap dance being given to yep. Satan by Little Nas which, X. Which looks so much more difficult to do at this speed. Oh, I man. know, right? Yeah. A lot of core strength for that. Satan's really like spotting him there when he's upside down. <laughs> which is nice. Like, it's, Satan's kind of just staring off into the distance, but, you know, helping out a little bit. Yeah, it, like, it looks like he's really there to just catch you when you fall, as it were. I'll help you do this, but I won't enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining being the actor playing Satan in this video would have been uh-huh. a little difficult. To just kind of not react. Yeah. Sometimes the no reaction is the hardest. Uh, So far, I haven't seen Satan make any facial expressions at all. And he probably won't. (laughs) Right. Well, this, it looks like he just made a dead expression. So, that's different. (laughs) I guess that's true. Oh, it was braids, but also removable. I think they call those extensions. Ah. (laughs) Lil Nas X. Is now. Oh. oh wow. That's pretty it's pretty fresh. It's a good look. This I had this plot point in my game as well. Yeah, I, where you descend a stripper pole into hell and then give Satan a laugh dance and steal his hair braids. That's Hades. I mean it's right? not pretty pretty close, honestly. Yeah, that sounds like Hades. Alright, so that uh, was that. And there it is. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Jim. I mean, I, I think uh now I want to watch it again with with sound. That's fair. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm missing out on a crucial part of the experience. However, that was an extremely entertaining sequence of images. Yeah. I think you uh, you gained something by seeing it in slow mo. I think when you watch it with the with the uh, music, it's you know it's all going to make sense. You're going to know what's going on. You're going to know that the judges were wearing jeans, and I feel like that's probably important context for. Right. Whatever. I think this is another great example of Alex. You were saying when you watched this video, it was like you were only half watching it, and I feel like that's my normal way of watching things. But like something like an an excuse to focus on, uh, like deep focus on a particular piece of media, it's uh, it allows me to enjoy it more. Yeah. Yeah, you get to see the details. Yeah, like, that was some artisanally crafted 
metaphor and whatever in each of those shots especially at the beginning and i feel like it was it's wasted if you're not actually looking for it if you're or if you're not looking at it yeah maybe the makeup on the snake man is honestly quite impressive yeah it was cool and there's a lot going on on the outfits just on all fronts you know one thing i'm gonna knock them for is they did all this a little bit of like CGI stuff and, and makeup stuff. Make all this cool imagery. But they had a very tight zoom in on the snake licking little Nass's belly button. And he did not have a forked tongue as far as I could tell. I feel like that oh, yeah. was a, an oversight. So hmm. devil's in the details, they say. Hmm. Anyway, I really like the imagery of riding a stripper pole into hell. Just a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 classy. Yeah. Uh, do we want to do one more topic? What do you got for us? All right, Shannon, your topic is, is The Birds the first genre zombie film? I would argue yes. Tell me more. So, zombie films... So, I took a zombie film class when I went to Berkeley, because that's what you do in Berkeley, is take all these weird little side classes for fun. Was it a decal? It was a decal. That is the name of those fun little classes. Uh, in the zombie film class, we kind of went through through history, how zombies appear you know, in film over time. I, the reason I s- said the word genre film is because I think the first zombie genre film a lo- that a lot of people go to is Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead. Um, there are actually films featuring zombies before that which I didn't know before the class, but now I do, uh, such as I Walk with a Zombie, which I believe you were present for, Uh, Alex. I happened to be in town and I caught I Walked with a Zombie. Yes. So prior to Romero, zombies were not necessarily dead. The, The fear was more about the zombie master hypnotizing you and making you into a zombie and he would like right. troll you um and it was also just like heavily rooted in uh racism and and fear of usually african or caribbean cultures would you say like the the genre zombie is that appropriating caribbean culture i don't think so because it's it's just a like there, it obviously has the roots from from the zombie in that culture, but it's very different the way it is portrayed essentially, and I think it takes a lot more from the concept of a ghoul, which I I would say a ghoul is is something that is not necessarily just from that culture. I, I think the use of the term zombie is, I would argue, probably somewhat coincidental because once you get into Romero's, I mean, that's the first time that you see on film, the concept of the zombie as a horde, uh, as a large group that spreads and infects. That's the first time you see cannibalism, the nature of the zombie being that they eat people. Mm -hmm. That's the first time that they're very for sure dead. And you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Like there's the whole, Fear is not uh, that an individual is going to make you one of these things, but that these things, there are just so many of them that they're going to swarm you and take over. And that made the zombie very adaptable throughout, you know, media as it went on, because the zombie can be related to various different 
fears that are on, on a large scale that are prevalent in in the culture. So fears of yeah. uh, nuclear war. Now it's all uh, disease based. Uh, lots of pandemic style fear based zombies and things like that. So going back to the to the question at hand, I recently rewatched The Birds and I, I was watching it and I was just noticing how it tracks just so closely, like thematically to Romero's Night of the Living Dead, as far as a horde of inhuman creatures that are coming after you to attack you for for no known reason and sort of that having to barricade yourself in while this uh, horde entity is is coming to attack you uh, and also the concept that it is like a new phenomenon like this is not something that has existed in the context of the world in the film and now it is suddenly happening and we don't know why we just know that we have to defend ourselves from this horde essentially yeah and it really just matched up so well that i was just like I literally was thinking like, uh, oh, you know, I wonder if they'd seen Night of the Living Dead. And then, of course, I looked it up to check and it came out significantly before Night of the Living Dead. All right. So, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at IMDb right now. The Birds is 1963. Night of the Living Dead was at least 10 years later. Uh, 68. Yeah, 68. So, yeah. Yeah. I the re- There's a lot of resonance there. Like, there's a lot of similarities. And I do suspect... I do think Night of the Living Dead probably takes more from the birds than it takes from the older idea of zombies. I would agree with that. Yeah. But I do think that like Night of the Living Dead adds the, I think there's a really important tweak to that idea, which is that these things used to be your loved ones. Yes. Mm, Yeah. Yes. Although I am going to point out that the birds dips its toe in there. In that yeah. throughout the entire film, there are these pair of lovebirds that are oh, no. always around our main characters. I mean, I think the first main character buys them, brings them to the house, uh, gifts them to the daughter who falls in love with them. And there is a scene at the very end of the film when, you know, some people have already been killed by the birds. We're terrified of them, but they have these inexplicable lulls where they don't attack you and you don't know why. But if you're very quiet, you can kind of creep past them. And there's a point when they're all trying to sneak out to the car. And, and be able to get in the car and escape before the birds attack again. And the little girl comes out of the house with the freaking lovebirds and is like, can we bring them? <laughs> and, it, you know, so I, I know it's like kind of a stretch, I think, but there are clearly these, these pets that this kid adores that everyone is now side-eyeing. And there are certain scenes where like one of the adult characters is like, giving the birds a look like i don't know if i can trust you anymore so even that i think a little tiny bit carries over into that same concept yeah yeah i can see it now if i remember right in the romero zombie movies it isn't a contagion right like no matter how you die you come back as a zombie uh i believe that's true I, i think they end up tying it to like a comet or some kind of nuclear attack or some something like that. But it is a worldwide phenomenon and it just happens. Yeah. I don't think they had quite gotten to the 
yeah, I'm not sure they had quite gotten to the it spreads from the zombies element. I think it was just if you are dead, you you come back as one of these. Looks well, like right too. And the birds, I don't think they address. They never figured out what caused the birds. They were just like it's just happening all over the place. Right, right. Which I think is another parallel of sort of this sense that they both have scenes with like uh, the characters trying to figure out what's going on by listening into the radio and hearing these other reports about like what's happening elsewhere and the degree to which this thing is, is spreading and or worldwide, which I'm trying to think of earlier examples. When was war of the world's broadcast? I think that was in the thirties. Cause that's sort of the closest earlier thing that I'm aware of that could track with this sort of concept of at the very least a worldwide event yeah the 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 radio drama was 1938 okay gotcha yeah that that's sort of the closest one i could i think that like ties into that theme but that one i think is very different in the sense that it is uh dealing with an invasion by an outsider which i think would have been pretty prevalent given that you're in between world wars there to have this sort of drama about an, an outsiding invasion force versus this concept of just this unexplainable thing is happening to the world and we all have to deal with it. And it's not anybody's fault in particular is sort of a, a different thing, I think. And then there were some other aspects too, that really uh, paralleled. Uh, they both, for example, have a female character who is presented as the main character who becomes essentially completely catatonic and useless after being attacked by uh, the enemy, whether it be a bird or a zombie, Um, which I just thought was interesting to see that that played out almost identically in those movies. Maybe that's just what women were like in the 60s. That is certainly the implication is that... (laughs) That is the case. Although uh, Romero's Night of the Living Dead, despite having the uh, very much the sexism element of women can't get anything done, there's I think there's even a scene where somebody refers to like the four of us, even though there's six people in the room, but two of them are women. Like he just discounts <laughs> that two of these humans are physically even present. But it does have a black male lead character. Yeah, so it is pretty progressive in that way. Uh, yeah, who, uh, by the way, slaps pretty hard the white woman <laughs> at one point in the film. So that that would have been, I think, kind of a big deal in 1968. Right, that's a sort of progressive. Yeah, so, to some degree. But uh, yeah, there's not a parallel with that in The Birds at all, as far as I noticed. Yeah, I, I just think, I just, I don't know, I just thought it was a really cool thing to see that you know because i I think before my my thought was essentially like how did romero jump from this afro-caribbean zombie concept to what became the basis for all zombie movies today you know because it does seem like a pretty big leap and i think i had sort of hypothesized that he was uh leaning on some of the uh Frankenstein tropes and the vampire tropes, which also would have been 
you know, available to him. And while I think that is true to some degree, that having watched the rewatched the birds recently, I just think that there's a lot that he might have gotten from like literally directly from that movie. Yeah, I'm very curious. And that begs the question of where did Alfred Hitchcock come up with this? Why the birds? Like what, what, you know, I've watched a number of other Hitchcock films and I feel like the birds is kind of a weird outlier as far as just the supernatural element of it and the horror just being such a strange thing to happen. So I'd be really curious to learn more about why the birds got made the way it did and whether there were any precursors that sort of developed this uh, specific style of modern horror that is fear of of the horde of the big group that's that's going to come get you. Fear of the other. Yeah. I mean, not even just fear of the other fear of a mass. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, Shannon, if this is, this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I don't really have much of a presence on the internet these days, but you can find me at the vaccine clinic if you come on down to get your shots. Don't become part of the zombie horde. <laughs> all right. And Alex, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I think I'm on the Topic Lords Discord. All right. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. It was fun, as always. Thanks for having us so much. We always enjoy coming on. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.